today we'll be reading from Ruth 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz, our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, wash therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And, he, and she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Take a moment to pray. Dear gracious God, we are thankful for this time set aside for fellowship and scripture study. We pray that your word would stir in our hearts tonight and illustrate an image of your love in our minds. Tonight we pray for our friends in Wesley Campus Ministry. We pray that you would continue to cultivate intentional and genuine Christian community. Um, we would like to offer prayers especially for their minister, Sarah Bellis. We ask this in the strong and loving name of Jesus. Amen. Hello, I'm just gonna do a little negotiating here. I just basically my job is to make the music team's job harder, since <laughs> so I just move all their stuff over, so then they have to move it. Okay. And then this is always tricky. It's like an obstacle course up here. Okay, and then I'm gonna try this. And it's the same height. Okay. <laughs> Every week I do that. Is that fair? <laughs> okay. How are we doing? Oh, man. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. No, seriously, I get that. It's a tough day. Tough, tough week for you all. Um, um, I mean, is it nice to be back in the sprinkle room? Warm and cozy sprinkle? Um, I haven't heard, like, throbbing bass yet or people shouting spontaneously, so I think we're in good shape. 
for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. And really, we're just a Christian campus ministry that exerts, exists to serve the campus and you all, wherever you are and whoever you are. And I say this every week, but I mean it every week. Uh, and maybe I'll just do a briefer version this time. But essentially, we just want to be the kind of place that anyone from any scene, any personal background could come. Uh, it's not for one kind of person. Hopefully, it's for every kind of person. And we mean that even about spiritually. Um, we recognize that a lot of people at Davidson are a lot of different places with Jesus and with Christianity. And we want to be the kind of place that welcomes you into community. And we're just really glad you're here. So whether you're convinced or unconvinced, whether you're a spiritual skeptic or you would call yourself a believer, uh, we're glad you're here. Or maybe those categories don't apply. None of the above, all of the above, somewhere in between. Uh, just thanks. And especially if you're new, thanks for taking the chance and coming out. Or if you haven't been for a while, thanks again, too. It's a lot of risk and a lot of time. We appreciate that. So anyway, that's what we're up to. So this semester, uh, by the way, this is the second to last large group that we have. Uh, I don't know if you guys have done the math. Hold your breath. That's why we're kind of doing a lot of <laughs> We're trying to get through the book of Ruth. I'm just going really fast. Um, so anyway, this semester in the large group, we've been looking at the books of Judges and the book of Ruth. And we've been looking at the topic of love in an R-rated world love in an R-rated world. Uh, we spent the first half of the semester roughly talking about the book of Judges, which was really just a constant reminder of how R-rated or TV mature our world can be, right? Yet at the same time, in the midst of all of that, uh, we, in all that stuff in the book of Judges that we, the grotesque, the violent, the crazy, um, we saw God's love. Over and over and over again, God showed up on the scene and he rescued his people, often in shocking ways. And the book of Ruth really invites us into the same kind of love, but it does it on a smaller, more intimate, more daily scale. We see how ordinary people move forward in an R-rated world. And that becomes the question for us. How do ordinary people move forward in an R-rated world? How do two widowed women and a forgotten farmer act out the intricacies of love in the days when the judges ruled? How do we at Davidson live out a positive love in the midst of so much negative stuff going on? There's, again, I'm just going to list this off really quick. There's ongoing geopolitical chaos still in Africa, the Middle East, and the Pacific Rim. There's heavy-duty hurricane and heavy-duty hurricane cleanup still. Um, there's still... We still have the aftermath and the possible potential of crazed violence, the aftermath in Charlottesville and Las Vegas and Texas. And then there's just the stuff that comes out every news cycle in Hollywood about sexual assault or sexual harassment. And let alone all the social media hashtag me too stories that remind us that even a place like Davidson, that we're not immune, that we've got heartache and we've got hurts too, that are very serious. And yet at the same time, God gives us these intimate personal histories of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz to lovingly ask us, what's your purpose? What is it that you're put on this planet at this particular moment to do? And we get to answer those big questions, those deep-seated questions by looking at the particular stories of stepping into the nitty-gritty reality of love in action in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And, but nevertheless, before we lose sight of what's oftentimes in the background of the book of Ruth, but it's always present, always looming, God. The focal point of the book of Ruth is God. God who's invisibly working, right? God who is invisibly working the angles, wholly, uneasily, 
extravagantly and riskily loving real R-rated people like us, which is a beautiful and uh, good news for all of us. So let's look at this book. That's the intro. Some of you are somewhat familiar with the book, um, but that's the intro for us. So let's take a look at it together. But before we do that, I'm going to pray one more time. Father, thank you for this time. Thanks for the students. Um, Thanks for the opportunity to stop and to be still and to know that you're God. To Maybe some of us are not comfortable with that idea. Maybe some of us are wrestling with being still. Some of us are wrestling with your existence. And some of us are um, pretty confident in both those things, but still feel like we struggle in moments like this. And I pray that you would be with us, um, whether we're happy or confused to be here. I pray that you would be moving among us in this moment, that you wouldn't let us alone, that you would help Jesus to just show up, to help us to, to see you, to see what you're about, to see your business, to see you high and lifted up, to be more believable and beautiful in the eyes of our hearts, O oh Lord. And I pray that you'd be with our thoughts, and you'd be with our ears, and you'd be with our eyes, and that you would help them to be open um, to your glory. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right. So I was in second grade. If those of you counting, that's the same grade where I struggled with the cursive R. I don't know if anyone got that one, but I know you guys care so much. But in second grade, I got a part in a class play, and it was a pretty pretty insignificant part. Um, Mr. Sloan. Mr. Sloan. Um, I don't even remember the name of the play, but I remember my character. <laughs> Tells you something about myself. Um Yet, it was a small part, like I said, but according to the parents in the audience, I nailed the part, <laughs> okay? I'd like to think it was because of my fake mustache, but I think in actuality, they could, they was, I was one of two students they could hear. Um, I, sh- I decided, I took the executive moment, decided that I would shout all of my lines at the top of my lungs, <laughs> which turned out to be really helpful when you were second grade. Um, Anyway, I can't really remember any thespian moments in third grade, but in fourth grade, our class play was Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. And I was excited to put my Mr. Sloan gifts back to work. And so I eagerly looked at all the possible parts I could play on the casting list, uh, and I set what I thought was a very realistic goal, okay? I wouldn't try out for the lead. I mean, Tom Sawyer, come on, there's a lot of people who get that role. But Tom did have a brother, and I felt like I had been training for that role my entire life. The annoying younger brother named Sid. (laughs) That's the name of Tom Sawyer's brother. I mean, we shared the same name. I was a younger brother, and I was pretty annoying. I felt like it was a shoe, and there's just no way I could not get this part. And so tryouts came and went. I gave it my all, and I eagerly went to look for my name on the Tom Sawyer casting list. And my eyes scrolled down. Nope, not Tom, but that was expected. I kind of figured that. And then I went to Tom's brother, Sid, and I didn't get that either. What in the world? I was so angry. And then I scrolled all the way to the very bottom of the list, and there was this friend. It was called the friend number, like, four. And he had, like, one line. Ready? Hey, Tom, you want to look through this piece of bottle glass? That's literally what I had. That was all I had. Still got it. Still got it. (laughs) Anyway, um, and really, like, the fourth grade Tom Sawyer casting will ever be a moment that marked my descent from 
ambitions of acting. Uh, it just got worse and worse. After five years of licking my um, acting wounds, I tried it again for the, in the freshman year of high school for uh, a play, and that didn't go well either. Uh, and so thereafter, I just kind of gave up on acting and figured that if I couldn't even get a, a friend role with one line in high school, that it was pretty much over for me. Okay? But really, like, off the stage and behind the bright lights, I have actually been a brilliant actor. My whole life, since I was very young, I have been cast in different roles, memorizing the scripts, and I have been nailing all of these slightly different parts. Saying all my lines right on cue, giving the audience what they want to hear, fearing bad reviews, living for the applause, distracting my inner critic. Okay? As a child, I played the good kid beautifully. In high school, I played the star scholar athlete. In college, I was the up for anything, fun guy with long hair. Yes, I had long hair. <laughs> then, with a senior year haircut, I became the, I just gotta get a job and get out of this place, I'm so over it, <laughs> okay, person. And as an adult, I played the prep school teacher intellectual, and now I guess my Broadway billing would be Mr. Nice, Lovable, but let's not forget put together pastor friend, okay? It's pretty long, all hyphenated. <laughs> but <laughs> I just want you to understand the exhaustion and the restlessness of these roles and my acting out of these roles <coughs> is just inevitable, isn't it? Don't you feel that in all the roles that you're asked to play? Especially this time of year with the papers and the reviews, and then you go back to, the, to home, you're sort of saying, maybe you're fresh and you're asking, how am I supposed to act? Or you're a sophomore or above and you're thinking, done this drill, it's going to be really weird when they put me in the childhood bed. Um, you know, there's all these different things that we're wrestling with. And then what? What do we do when we feel the existential weight of the self-doubt of the part we have to play, right? What happens when the good kid or the scholar-athlete fails at something big? Or when the fun up-for-anything person is feeling sad or serious? Or when the nice but put-together pastor friend is feeling cranky or out of sorts? <laughs> Then what? What do we do with a disappointed audience? What do we do with a bad internal review? In Ruth chapter three, the narrator is showing us Ruth is putting on and putting off many different roles and various scripts that other people have written for her. And we see this by the different ways that Ruth is addressed and dressed literally. She's called my daughter. She's dressed as a bride. She's called your servant a worthy woman, and always in the background lurking, but never said in this particular chapter, the Moabite or the Moabitess, okay? And this leads to an intentionally repeated question, first by Boaz and then by Naomi, in verses 9 and then 16 in the original Hebrew. They both ask Ruth, who are you? Who are you, okay? And the way that the narrator frames this question frames the whole episode around these questions, lets us know that Ruth's answer to this question of who she is, how she gets herself, how she thinks through what part she's playing, right? The way she's settled, these things can lead to rest. So you see the word rest in the first verse and the 18th verse, okay? <clears throat> that idea of rest. And of course the same is true for us, right? about we're always asking that question, who are we? 
who am I? And we're asking anyone we meet in some way, shape, or form. And we're also always desiring rest. And those two, that question and that desire go together. So Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, show us where true rest is found. Okay? God tells us who we really are. His daughters and his sons. And this identity leads to living with risk. Living with freedom and with love. Okay, so let me put it another way. God gives us an authentic role. What we're looking for, an authentic role as his children. And this part to play allows us the freedom to speak our own lines. And the freedom to risk for love. Okay, so God gives us an authentic role that allows us to speak freely and to risk for love. Okay, so that's what we're up to in terms of thinking through what this passage is. And I'm going to continue to do this metaphor. So if you're frustrated with the acting metaphor, I'm sorry. Uh, I even wove it into the outline, which is rare. So I, I know I'm just calling it out right now. Look on, your, on your, your handout. You can take a look with me. But basically, we're going to look at the risky love that Ruth enacts here and that her life calls us to in chapter 3 um, on, the, on the handout. We're using this acting metaphor that I'm obviously very fond of. So here we go. First, first point, okay, verses 1 through 5. Naomi writes a script for Ruth, okay? And this helps us see how we're all actually living out roles in other people's scripts, okay? Second, verses six through nine, Ruth improvises on her lines, on the script that Ruth Naomi has written for her, and she changes her role midstream, okay? And this helps us to see how to flip the script and speak our own lines. And then third, verses 10 through 18, we're going to look at the way that God through Boaz helps to recast Ruth. And this helps us uh, to see how we suspend our disbelief about God and about ourselves. Okay, so we're, tonight we're back to a more typical outline. We're just going to go straight through the passage, okay? And so we're going to begin at the beginning in verses 1 through 5 and how Naomi's script uh, for Ruth exposes the ways that we all live by scripts, Okay. So to understand why Naomi writes this particular script and this particular role for Ruth, it helps to give some context for how Naomi and Ruth got to this point. So really, really briefly, the book of Ruth begins with two Israelites, Naomi and Elimelech, in the town of Bethlehem, the territory of Judah in ancient Israel. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion, and there's this massive famine, and they go to food-rich, water-rich Moab, Okay. They live there for a while, but while they're living there, Elimelech, the husband, the patriarch, dies. Okay? And Kilion and Malon get married to two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. But then Kilion and Malon, Ruth's and Orpah's husbands, and Naomi's sons die. Okay? And there they are. Until Naomi hears good news about Bethlehem, that there's grain, the famine's over. Naomi decides to go back there to live. Uh, and then on the way there, she convinces Orpah to go back home to Moab. But Ruth clings. She won't leave. She can't kick her off her leg. And so she goes with her. And so Naomi and Ruth enter Bethlehem. They, they settle there. But then they have this problem. They have no food. So Ruth goes out and does this thing called gleaning, which is going after the harvesters in an agricultural field and picking up the scraps. And then in chapter 2, we see how God took care of Ruth through the field of Boaz. 
Naomi's relative. And if you remember last week, or if you've read the book of Ruth before, Boaz meets Ruth, tells her only to glean in his field, gives her his protection, gives her an abundance of agricultural supplies, more grain than his harvesters, and much, much, much more grain than the average gleaner. Uh, and then when Ruth takes her glean surplus home, Naomi's thrilled. And then she says, guess where I found it? Boaz's field. And then all of a sudden, Naomi gives a fist pump. Yes. She's like, yes. Okay, because guess what? Boaz is our redeemer, which means that he's the family member. He's the kinsman redeemer. The family member who is bound by the law of God to take on Naomi and Ruth's needs. This includes buying back and restoring the farmland and possibly marrying a woman in the family who happens to be widowed and happens to have no children, a.k.a. Ruth. Okay? So, by chapter 3, verse 1, where we are now, roughly seven weeks later, okay, so it's the shortest duration of time between the chapters, Naomi's fist pump and palms rubbing together anticipation has turned into a pacing back and forth with her hands behind her back. Okay? Yes, they now have grain to eat, but she, and particularly Ruth, they have no rest. And a rest that's very narrowly defined in that patriarchal ancient Near Eastern culture as the house of a husband. Okay, so Ruth has no, what sometimes you'll hear called prospects. Okay, so the impeccably buttoned up, stiffly collared Boaz, he seems to have cold feet for Ruth. Like, what's the deal? Seven weeks later, nothing? No romantic tension? No friction? Come on. And so, whether because he's sensitive to her mourning period, I don't know, or it's just plain old male passivity, I have no idea. But nonetheless, Naomi schemes this plan in the face of Boaz's cold feet, right? She scripts out a play for Ruth, and it goes something like this. See, Boaz is winnowing, barely tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, your best one, and go down to the threshing floor, and don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Okay, from its premise to its details, this plan is both simultaneously well-meaning and also extremely questionable. <laughs> okay, can we just say that? Just wait, okay? For instance, what does Naomi intend to have happen here? Like, what's her goal? Can we just ask that question for a second? Is she trying to take advantage of Boaz? Like, take him by surprise? You know, his stomach's full, he's got some wine in the belly. And does, like, Naomi want Boaz to, like, lose himself? Lose a sense of himself and sense of propriety, the smell and the sight of Ruth? After all, the language of the plan is full of suggestive sexuality, right? Uncovering the feet in the Old Testament suggests full-on nakedness. The words no and delay down are often in the Hebrew euphemisms for sexual intercourse. Okay? And if Naomi means for Boaz to lose control with Ruth, to have sex and maybe feel some mourning after remorse, and therefore feel duty-bound to marry her, what about Ruth in that plan? Is she being pimped out here? Do marriage ends justify the surprise attack's sexual means? Or best case scenario, Naomi assumed Boaz will be a worthy man, as chapter 2 is said and shown, and he won't take advantage of Ruth's vulnerability. Still, 
Naomi has to know that what Boaz tells Ruth in verse 12. Like, Boaz is not the closest relative. He does not get first dibs on marriage to Ruth. So likely, Naomi's plan, her script for Ruth, is a risque, ancient Near Eastern version of a personal ad. Okay? Sinclair Ferguson puts the substance of what Naomi's up to, what, he's, what she's dressing up with Ruth, um, this way. Single Moabite woman. <laughs> Widowed, childless, lives with her mother-in-law, seeks well-to-do Bethlehem businessman <laughs> with view to marriage, must love mother-in-law. <laughs> okay. While most of the scripts people write for us are often not as dramatic and maybe questionable as Naomi's in these verses, I would argue oftentimes they're just as well-meaning and they do have that questionable element. Okay. I think the theologian Walter Brueggemann helpfully defines what exactly a script is. I've been using that pretty fast and loose, so let me do that. Scripts are the stories that we tell each other that eventually become normative for us. That is, we trust them. They help you to see these particular encounters are not merely accidents or incidents, but they can be seen in terms of playing out a script. Okay? So everyone has a script. And we trust it to make sense of, to order, to make a story out of particular events that in isolation may seem accidental, okay? And they compel us to play a role in that life, in our life, in this world. Does that kind of make sense? Are we struggling with that? Okay. But what's so helpful about seeing Naomi write Ruth's script? By the way, she's, Naomi speaks 55 words in the Hebrew, and Ruth says four. Okay, four words. Okay, verses one through five show us the that show us who typically writes our scripts for us, and why we choose to play the roles that are written for us. Okay, so we're gonna look at who chooses these typically these scripts, who writes these scripts, excuse me, and why do we choose to play the roles in them? Okay, so Naomi is Ruth's mother figure. Okay, and clinical psychologists such as Henry Cloud tell us that. Our first scripts oftentimes come from parents, right? We listen and we play a role to get connection with them, okay? You do well, you get a head pat, right? Or a cookie or whatever, okay? Connection, cookie, connection. Okay. And like Naomi's plan, uh, parents often cast us in roles that are really well-meaning, right? They want our rest. But there are acts and scenes in these plans, in these scripts, that can have flawed premises, that can have flawed details, all right? And as we grow up, we want to become separate from mom and dad, and so we pick up scripts from other people, from peers or other mentors, people like teachers and pastors and coaches, right? But again, while they're usually well-meaning, they're flawed. For instance, oftentimes the, the scripts we pick up maximize what we're good at and minimize what we're bad at, okay? Again, I'm all for strength finding, okay? Don't get me wrong. School, work ethic, character, athletics, as long as I can be loved when that all fails, okay? As long as the weak parts of me get some love too. I'm for that. But more often than not, we get locked into playing a part, performing a role absolutely perfectly. Do you get this? So that we begin to think in the words of Brene Brown, if I look perfect, live perfectly and do everything perfectly, 
I can avoid or minimize painful feelings of shame and judgment and blame. But this tightrope walk that starts out with smiling and winking emojis often falls into anxious sweating emojis. Okay, eyes closed, hands over eyes sometimes, frowny face, no mouth emojis. Okay. (laughs) Then our feelings get meta really quickly, don't they? It's my fault. I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling bad because I'm just not good enough. I'm not even good enough with my feelings. Okay. And of course, this just leads us to redouble our performance of that particular script or find a new role where I don't have to be me at least, right? If I can get another role, I don't have to be the harshest, most judgmental person I know, which by the way is us to ourselves. But Ruth's improvisation on Naomi's script in verses six through nine shows us a different way forward, okay? Shows us how to flip the script, how to speak our own lines. And that's point two on your outline. Okay, so at first, verses six through eight, it looks like Ruth is gonna do just as her mother-in-law commanded her. I mean, it says that in verse six, right? It seems she's gonna go and play the seductress part perfectly. Okay, look, there is a place for honoring elders and parents like Naomi, but it's hard to overstate just how potentially dangerous and sexually suggestive, and just the sheer preposterousness of this script, okay? It goes into the very depths of like social customs and then kind of wakes them up and then willy-nilly slaps them back and forth. First gender norms, then age norms, then socioeconomics. It's just kind of a crazy show. Okay, the best thing I can do is illustrate this in modern terms. So this is my best shot, okay? You guys ready? Okay, here's the stereotype, here's the version of what's going on in a stereotyped way with Ruth's ham-fisted approach here, okay? I'd invite you to imagine Ruth, showered, shaved, perfumed up, in a pale powder blue prom dress, okay? She's a wash and glitter in sequins. She's bedazzled, okay? I don't know what that means, but sure. Her hair is kind of loosely snaking in long curls. Her lips are glossy with bubblegum flavored lip smackers, lip gloss. She's even got a fragile white flowered corsage on her wrist. Now imagine, Now imagine Boaz, okay? He's had his buffalo wings, his blue cheese and beer, topped off for fresh breath's sake by a Cuban cigar. His buddies have all laughed or found a place to crash post-poker game in his man cave, the basement. And Boaz is asleep, head resting against his wadded up card winnings, hot sauce, stained plain white shirt and plaid boxers up on the couch. Dark leather, of course. Then, Ruth, dressed like a high school prom queen, tiptoes, awkwardly wobbling on her heels because she doesn't wear them very often, and lifts up Boaz's blanket, exposing his feet to the draft of the left open screen door of the basement. And then, Ruth crouches just inches from where he's snoring, well in range of that amazingly stale breath, just for record, just waiting for him to wake up from the chilly draft at his feet. And so we see in verse 9 what happens. Boaz awakes startled. Is it a nightmare? We don't know. Fear for his grain stack? I don't know. Just cold breeze on his toes? Maybe. (laughs) Whatever the reason, Boaz sees and smells a woman hovering there above his lower body. And he hoarsely asks what most of us would be, 
are you? <laughs> that must have been a shocking question for Ruth at that moment, right? Think about how awkward that is. Dressed up, sent out as she was. And further, Naomi's script, like all human scripts, is already breaking down for her. Boaz was not supposed to ask questions. He was just supposed to tell Ruth what to do. Okay, so Ruth, in that jarring moment, in the darkest part of the night, in the most forbidden male-only place, Ruth answers Boaz's question. I'm Ruth, your servant. She uses the word now, ama, a marriageable servant, as opposed to shipka, an unmarriageable servant that she aspired to in chapter 2. But instead of stopping there, or asking Boaz how he wants to handle the situation, Ruth ad-libs in a beautiful way. Okay? She speaks her own lines. She tells him what to do. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Or, Boaz, fulfill the blessing that you prayed over me seven weeks ago. Be God's wings of refuge for me. Give me the rest that is marriage. And restore the land and the fortunes of Naomi as our redeemer. You see, Ruth is not seducing Boaz into a morning after remorse. Nor is she even allowing Boaz to decide what's best. Ruth is deciding what's best. She's getting down on one knee. She's proposing to Boaz. She's saying, spread your wings over me. And she demands that he take care of Naomi, for you are a kinsman redeemer. Ruth realized that Naomi left her own future. Naomi left her own rest out of Ruth's script. So Ruth is flipping the script She's taking the pen, and she's rewriting Naomi back into the scene. But even more than that, Ruth is trying to quit the role-playing altogether. She's asking Boaz for what she wants. Will you love me for me? Will you love all of me? My foreignness, my social inferiority, my youth, my poverty, my mother-in-law, our family. Buzz, will you have the real, the full, the imperfect me? When I fail big time, when I'm serious or sad, when I'm cranky or out of sorts, will you redeem? Will you spread your wings over my expert self-condemnation? But before we get to Boaz and Jesus' response to these questions, can I just pause here and ask us to actually ask for what we want? Okay? If you're like me, this is so hard. It's so hard to go to God in prayer and ask him to love you in this way, to know that kind of love maybe. Will you ask God to free you from performance, from playing the part? Will we speak our own lines and ask God to protect us in our fears? Will we risk asking God to take care of us in our weakness, to cover over our imperfections? But also, would you ask what you need from other people, from the Boazes in your life? And will we stick our necks out for the other people in need? the Naomi's. You see, 
we'd love the world to work like jobs and inter internships should work, don't we? Like, they should initiate. They should recognize us. They should come shake our hand, handshake. Because frankly, <laughs> our performance is that good. I, my social reputation, my good grades, I've got shelves of trophies and shelves of accolades. You should come knocking to me, job recruiter, okay? But obviously that's not how the world works and that's not how God says the world usually works. Instead, God promises to use us. And what oftentimes feels like risky prayers and risky actions are actually God's two hands at work in the world. His left and his right. Yes, asking and getting vulnerable can look a bit compromising, like Ruth at Boaz's feet. Okay? Praying and sticking our necks out is not easy and could end extremely poorly. It's easily misunderstood. But paying attention and stepping out of our social roles is how we risk and get love. Don't you want to be loved for who you are and not for how well you play a part? Don't you want all of you, even your most judgmental perfectionist self, loved? Perhaps G.K. Chesterton understood freedom from play acting, from how we, how we always are striving to come across best, when he said it this way, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. But really the reason that we can risk the freedom and we can risk the love, that we can honestly ask for what we need is because God responds to us like Boaz responds to Ruth. Only more so, right? And this recasting, this, shri this script shredding kind of love is how we suspend our disbelief. And we're finally at point three, okay? Boaz responds to Ruth breaking character by blessing her, by noticing and celebrating the way that Ruth is sticking her neck out for Naomi. Okay, yet again in verse 10, right? His only command to Ruth is do not fear. And then he tells Ruth, he, Boaz, the superior in that time and place in gender, class, economics, nationality, and even religious matters. He, Boaz, says, I will do for you, Ruth, all that you ask. Verse 11. He will spread his wings, his arms, his life over all of Ruth's burdens, all of, all of Ruth's blemishes. Boaz will redeem Ruth and Naomi. He will take on their debts and their troubles. In the meantime, Boaz looks out for her reputation and safety during the night in verses 13 through 14. And he looks out for her and Naomi in the morning with six shovelfuls of barley. And according to verse 18, Boaz will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. But why? Why would Boaz respond to Ruth asking? Why would he respond to her risky actions in this way? Boaz tells us in verse 11. It has to do with the way he is re-answering that question for Ruth that he asked in verse 10. Okay? Ruth, who are you? You're mine. You're a daughter. You're my daughter. You're a member of this family. You're a servant. You're a worthy woman. Ruth isn't a script. She isn't a part to play perfectly. She's a daughter. She's worth it. So will God love me for me? Will God love all of me, the real, the full, the imperfect, all of me? 
What about when I fail big time? What about when I'm serious or sad? What about the, the, the friendly pastor put together person who oftentimes is a cranky mess? Will you, God, redeem us? Will you spread your wings, the corner of your garments, over my expert self-condemnation? The answer is, and now, my daughter, my son, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. Why? God tells us the New Testament, right? Who are you? You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Well done, good and faithful one. Enter into your daddy's joy. But how do you know this is true? Because before the time and universe began, God the Father wrote a script for God the Son. And it's beyond well-meaning. And though it has been questioned, it's perfect. God the Son, Jesus, perfectly performed the perfect script for us. Jesus risked the divine reputation, exposed himself first to fragile baby human bodies, okay, then to a mini-series of misery as a poor carpenter in a foreign land. And during his life, this man did not rest until he settled the matter of our rest. And his restlessness took him all the way to the cross. His nakedness was uncovered there. He risked compromise, extreme vulnerability. He risked big time failure. And of course, easy, all too easy misunderstanding. And there, God finally settled the matter of our rest. It wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. It was his love for us. So I've got a story at the end. I know we're pushing it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Okay, like his son, my dad had an early and unsuccessful acting career. Okay, just so you know. The way he tells it, one day, his mom asked him to go down to downtown Farmville for Gina to pick up something for her. He protested he was afraid of this mean older kid who liked to hang out there. Right? And so, but his mom wouldn't hear it. My grandmother was a stern woman. And so he went down to downtown Farmville. But then he also took matters in his hands, his own hands, before he left. He took a bottle of rubber cement and a bag full of cotton balls. He went into the bathroom and he applied both to his face. So he made himself a white beard of cotton balls all over his face. Okay? He looked in the mirror with satisfaction. He walked confidently downtown thinking no one will ever see me, no one will recognize me, just an old man passing by. Okay? And of course, his role and his disguise were utterly preposterous. They didn't fool anybody, and the mean older kid looked at him, and then they both started laughing on the spot. It's an amazing story, right? Look, if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, right, that the curtain has been ripped in two, that Jesus' perfect performance of God's, the Father's perfect script was the final part that was needed, okay? If that's true, then I'm free. I'm free to ask, I'm free to risk, I'm free to love, okay? I'm free to laugh at the way my life sometimes looks, like a white cotton ball beard, okay? Who am I fooling? Everybody knows I have my share of shame and judgment and blame. And Jesus is saying, I see you. Take off the cotton balls. Come and rest. So what about the end of the semester? What about the meantime? What do we do while we wait for the man Jesus to settle the matter? When it feels like he has gotten cold feet for us. 
In the meantime, there's schoolwork to be done. But even now we get to ask risky questions. We get to laugh at ourselves. We get to listen closely to really truly understand someone beneath the rubber cement and the cotton fluff of the stage makeup. We get to improvise. We get to say to each other, I see you. All of you matters. Every last bit. I want all of it. I want to be with you. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Father, um, it's a lot in this passage that I struggle to believe. Help my own belief. Help our unbelief. Help us to know that you're like this. That you free us out. That you love us. That you're for us. That you care about us. That you see us and you don't run away. That you see us and you hug us. Father, I pray that you be with us. Help us this time of year especially. Help us to be free. Help us to know your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.